Our Lord and our God, we thank you again for your word given to us in this letter to Titus. Help us by your Holy Spirit to understand grace, to understand that instead of the wrath we deserve, you redeemed us by Christ's work and merit. Help us to understand that our motivation to keep your commandments and to live a godly life should be out of gratitude and love for you. May we never cease to be amazed at the grace and mercy extended to us undeserving sinners. We ask too that your Holy Spirit transforms us by the truth of your word. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight we, we are continuing our look at Titus chapter 2. And as I've said, tonight we'll be looking at verses 11 to 15. So please have your Bible open there. Remember last evening we looked at uh, the first 10 verses of chapter 2. Uh, and we noted there that the Apostle Paul commands Titus to teach with authority various groups within the church. And, and he gives specific instructions tailored for each of these groups. Older men, verse 2. Older women, verse 3. Younger women, verses 4 and 5. Younger men, verses 6 and 8. And Paul particularly wants older men and older women to really to mentor the younger men and younger women respectively. And we noted he also actually gives directions to, to servants or slaves in verses 9 and 10 regarding submission to, to their masters. And we noted too that Paul really emphasizes various characteristics and traits that we should all have, traits such as self-control, faithfulness, dignity, respect, godliness, and love. And he does that because these traits should really characterize the lives of everyone in a church, whatever age, whatever station in life you may happen to be. And he does that because these traits that he mentions in this letter are really the fruit of the Spirit. And you'll, you'll see that if you, if you, if you, when you've got time. You, you'll see that in Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23. All these traits that Paul mentions in this letter are really the fruit of the Spirit. And he does that because all these traits are absolutely key to wise and holy living. And we noted then that in verse 7, uh, he turns his attention back to Titus and gives him instruction really for correct conduct of someone in, in, in leadership. And a major reason that Paul does that is because right behavior, if those in church leadership live rightly and behave rightly, it doesn't give 
the critics any excuse to criticize them or even to criticize the Christian church. And we could say that in, in verses 1 to 10 of chapter 2, Paul gives exhortations to, to different people in the church as to what their character and conduct should be. And he also says that their character and conduct is to show that they are those who have been changed through the transforming work of God's Holy Spirit. And because they've been transformed, that should evidence itself in living a godly life. And now when we come to verses 11 to 15, Paul is telling us really why Titus and elders in churches are to promote godliness among people in their church. And it's because, as Paul says in verse 11, it's because the grace of God has appeared. In other words, Paul is saying the reason these Christians are to obey the word of God is because of God's grace. It's God's grace that inspires Christians to right behavior and to right thinking. And the qualities which Paul describes in this chapter are qualities really that must be grounded in the grace God gives us. And Paul, in, in, in earlier, in several verses in, in, in this letter, where he gives instruction for proper behavior, he does that with grace in mind. And he does that because God's grace is the foundation on which these traits, traits such as self-control, respect, and godliness, all these traits, the fruit of the Spirit, in other words, are based and founded on God's grace. These are the things that, this is what Paul is really commanding Titus to teach, why he's telling these Titus to teach boldly and with authority. And in verses 11 to 15, there's actually five things that Paul teaches us about God's grace. And specifically, he tells us in verse 11 that grace transforms. In verse 12, that grace teaches. And in verse 13, that grace looks for the blessed hope. In verse 14, that grace works. And in verse 15, that grace shouldn't be disregarded or, or, or ignored. So those are the five things that I want us to look at tonight. So firstly, grace transforms verse 11. Notice verse 11, in verse 11, Paul says, and as I said earlier, I'm, I'm, I'll be quoting from the ESV. In verse 11, Paul says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. So we could ask the question, well, what is grace? It's what the catechisms many of us learned as children call the unmerited favor of God. 
In other words, grace is the sovereign favor of God. And since we are fallen and rebellious sinners, it's something we've not earned. Nobody deserves God's forgiving grace. And Paul is saying to these people, all of whom, like us, are sinners, that God's salvation bringing grace has appeared to them. To paraphrase, to paraphrase what Paul is saying, he's saying God's grace not only forgives, but it transforms. Notice verse 11 begins with the word for. That's telling us that what comes in the next few verses is the reason and the basis for Paul's instructions to Timothy. We live in holiness because, as verse 11 says, God's grace has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That phrase, the grace of God, is used often uh, synonymously with the phrase, the Son of God. God's grace, in other words, appeared when the Lord Jesus visited our planet, and especially when he gave himself for our sins. It's God's grace that put Christ on the cross for us. So gratitude for what the Lord has done for our salvation is and should be and must be the motivation for holiness. And the power for sanctification is the Holy Spirit who regenerates us, who gives us faith in Jesus and who indwells us and in doing so enables us to live a holy life because holy living is the fruit of salvation. Holy living is not what moves God to redeem us. It's God's grace that moved him to redeem us. And in verse 11, Paul is telling us that by his grace, our God brought salvation for all people. Paul isn't saying that every single person God created will be saved. Rather, he means that God's salvation extends to every person who truly confesses Christ as the resurrected Lord. Jesus came not to save only one nation, but he came to redeem his people. And his people includes people from every tongue and tribe, as Revelations 7 verses 9 to 10 tell us. And therefore, Paul is saying that you, Titus, and the elders in all churches, you must expect and must encourage every member of your flock who is called by grace to live and to grow in righteousness. Tell your people to live and to grow in righteousness because that's by the grace of God. Because one of the purposes of our salvation 
One of the purposes, rather, of God's salvation is to produce in us a life of holiness. And since God has manifested his grace to all people in the Christian church, then all people in the Christian church are to commit themselves to living a life of godliness. Let me put it this way. In verses 1 to 10 of chapter 2, Paul says, live a godly lifestyle. And then in verse 11, he's saying, because God has shown his transforming grace in Jesus Christ, we must show that transforming grace in our lives by a godly lifestyle. I think it's vital we understand that we only begin to live rightly because of God's grace towards us. And it's just as vital that each time the Lord forgives us, we are to be more thankful for his grace and mercy. And that should motivate us to obeying God, to doing his will. Remember, the Lord is not required to pardon us even once, let alone repeatedly. It's remembering that. It's remembering God's abundant grace and mercy to us that is our motivation to live a holy life. Secondly, grace teaches, verse 12. We've seen in verse 11 that grace transforms us. And what we see in verse 11 is that grace teaches That becomes a bit more obvious if you read verses 11 and 12 this way. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people and training us to renounce, renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, and so on. Among other things, the Apostle Paul teaches us in Romans 12, verse 2, by his warning to be transformed by the renewing of your mind is that right thinking is necessary for right living. Those who believe wrong things will not be the kind of people that our Lord will be proud of. Hebrews 2 verse 11 actually says that. This link between proper thinking and proper doing or living is not something new to the New Covenant or the New Testament. It's actually from the Old Covenant. The Ten Commandments, for example, begin with the assertion that the Creator God is the Lord and Savior of Israel. Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2. Keeping these commandments was and is impossible for anyone who doesn't trust in the Creator alone. Renewal of the mind is impossible without regeneration. John 3, verse 3. Because with regeneration comes a new mind that is able to receive God's truth, that is able to have a new desire to obey His will. 
And this world, Paul is saying in verse 12, includes the renunciation of ungodliness and worldly passions. The Apostle Daw there is really, we could say, characterizing the Christian life, which when you think about it, is a turning away from all that the scriptures call unrighteousness. And it's a turning to the Lord and to everything the Lord defines as righteous. Whether the world's recognize that or not. In short, Paul calls us to live a life of repentance. And so in verses 11 and 12, when Paul says, the grace of God has appeared, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. He's really saying that grace not only transforms, but that grace is our instructor. Grace is our teacher of godliness. The same grace that saves us, transforms us, and trains us to live a holy life. And look at verse 12. There are four things there that Paul tells us to do. Two negatives and two positives. First, we are to renounce ungodliness. That is, we shouldn't be polluted with sin and live ungodly lives. Secondly, we are to renounce worldly passions. That is, we are to renounce the sinful desires, urges, and tendencies that our fleshly selves have. Thirdly, we are to live self-controlled, upright lives. That is, we are to live sensibly, having full control of ourselves and not being driven by our desires and our lusts. We are to live righteously, in other words, towards others. To put it very simplistically, we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. And fourthly, he says, we are to live Godly lives in the present age. To put that very simplistically, we are to put God's interests first in our life. That means we do what Jesus says in Matthew 6, verses 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. In other words, we are to glorify God in all that we do. And so Paul is saying that it's God's sanctifying grace that enables us to be self-controlled, that enables us to love our neighbor, that enables us to be wholly devoted to God. However, it's important we understand that these virtues only please God if they spring from a personal faith in the saving work of Christ. And something that Paul's actually telling us in, in verses 11 to 14. And he's also telling us there that these are the virtues that should characterize us in this world. 
we must submit to Jesus as Lord and work towards self-control, towards uprightness, towards godliness. But never let us forget that pleasing God in all areas is begun and completed by grace. A renunciation of ungodliness and worldly passions is, however, something that must be done daily. And that can only be achieved by the grace of God through our reliance on the Holy Spirit. We need to daily renounce any ungodly behavior we may be indulging in. And we need daily to turn to Christ from that temptation and ask him by his spirit to help us overcome it. That's our role. That's what we have to do. So thirdly, grace looks for the blessed hope. Verse 13. Detractors of or opponents, for that matter, of Christianity, often characterize the Christian faith as one based on myths and delusion, as one so focused on the life to come that it produces people who do nothing about the injustice in the world, in the here and now. And I would say that that is simply a caricature of the church, because every believer is actually concerned about the past, the present, and the future. And in the New Testament, we see that there's an emphasis on the past and the present. Because the New Testament continually looks back on the work of Christ in order to foster within us the desire to do good today in gratitude salvation. That's something Paul's actually telling us in, in, in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2. And interestingly enough, the Apostle Peter says more or less the same thing in 1 Peter 2 verse 24. Professing Christians shouldn't be those who are so heavenly minded that they are no earthly good. In other words, we shouldn't be so focused on the life to come that we neglect our duties in the present. We can't and can never live in the future. We can only live in the present. That's really a conclusion that we draw from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where again Paul talks about the reason for the resurrections, the importance of resurrections for the resurrection for believers. So I urge you, if you've got time, do look at 1 Corinthians verse 15. See, this kind of thinking that people can be so heavenly minded that they are no earthly good really shows, I would say, a, a failure to understand the future rightly. We need to understand what it means to live in the here and now. And in verses 12 and 13, Paul's telling us that the salvation-bringing grace of God 
is teaching us hope. And that grace looks for the blessed hope. Let me put it in another way. Paul is saying in verses 12 and 13, a self-controlled, upright, and godly life is always accompanied by awaiting for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's why I'm, I'm actually quoting from the ESV rather than the NIV, because I think it puts it uh, slightly better. See, grace trans- trains us, teaches us to hope in the certain expectation of the fulfillment of God's promises and plans, especially the glorious return of Jesus Christ. That's how grace trains us to be hopeful for the return of Jesus Christ. You see, Paul knows that we are Christians living and attempting to live a godly life in a fallen world. And he knows that that can be very discouraging to us because we sometimes find ourselves in difficult situations that won't get any better. So Paul is reminding us that no matter how difficult things may be now, if we are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ today, we have the confidence, expectation that in the last day we will see our Redeemer in our resurrected flesh. It's the grace of hope that strengthens us now by reminding us of the absolute certainty of the appearance of Jesus Christ, God gives us a blessed hope that transcends any and every situation we may find ourselves in now. So grace not only transforms and teaches, but it also helps us look to the blessed hope, helps us look for the appearing of Jesus Christ. Fourthly, grace works. Verse 12. In verse 12, Paul is telling us that grace works when he says that Jesus gave himself to redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Notice in this particular verse, Paul stresses that Christ gave himself both to redeem us from a life lived in sin and to purify us so that we manifest his grace in a life that is zealous for doing good. We are saved by God's grace that we receive through faith. You see, it's Christ who saves us. And when he saves us, he not only forgives our sins, but he also begins a work of transformation which will culminate on the day of the blessed appearing of Jesus Christ when all our sins will be eradicated and we never ever sin again. 
You see, God in his mercy not only wants to see us forgiven, but he wants us also to be delivered from a life of sin. He wants us to move from a life of sin to a life of goodness and really and ultimately obedience. You see, Jesus' work in the past has liberated us from the bondage of sin in the present. That's essentially what Paul is saying in verse 14. So we needn't feel that sin has got a complete stranglehold over us. We should instead be those who long for our Savior's return. And in longing for our Savior's return, our desire should be to have a taste, really, of glory today. And we can do that as we pursue holiness. We will never be perfect, but we can grow in holiness. Ephesians 1 verses 13 to 14 says this, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, was sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Ephesians 1 verses 13 and 14 there is, is really telling us that the Holy Spirit, as guarantee of our inheritance, protects and preserves Christians now until they receive their ultimate inheritance. And one of the ways the Holy Spirit assures us of this is by giving us a foretaste now in our sanctification, using this blessed hope in what we will be at the resurrection. The Holy Spirit uses that to begin moving us slowly towards full holiness. And this is why with each passing day, there should be what theologians call a decreasing propensity to sin. In other words, with each passing day, we should have a less desire to sin. That's how we can experience today what we will be we begin to experience today, rather, what we will ultimately experience in the resurrection to come. And that should become a motivation for us to pursue holiness and to please God. And fifthly, grace will not ignore it. I smile at that because it's, it's not something that's easily seen, but easily seen rather in, the, in this in verse 15, but I'll, I'll try to explain as best I can. What do I mean by the gospel will not be ignored? Well, look at verse 15. Notice how it starts. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. In the NIV, it says, these then are the things you should teach. So what are these things Titus is to exhort? 
Well, it's everything that Paul's discussed in the preceding verses, especially the purposes of the Lord's passion. Notice in verse 13, Paul speaks of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Paul there is applying the titles God and Savior to Jesus. And in doing so, he's actually making a clear statement of the deity or divinity of Christ. And so in verses 11 to 14, Paul is reminding us that this Jesus died and was resurrected in order to defeat sin and death and to purify us from all unrighteousness. Jesus has also shown us that he will come again to wrap up the covenant promises from of old, remembering this past event and looking forward to the renewal of all things is what should motivate us to be zealous for good works. And in verse 15, Paul is saying that this is what Titus and elders in all churches are to declare and exhort. In other words, they are to teach and encourage believers to live lives of practical godliness and to rebuke any who contradict the apostolic teachings, either by word or indeed even by lifestyle. And remember who Titus is, a young man commissioned by Paul, an apostle, commissions to a leadership position over the churches in Crete. And he, Titus, is to follow the Apostle Paul's commands with all authority, as it says in verse 15. And with that phrase, let no one disregard you, at the end of verse 15, Paul is reminding Titus that he, Titus, has been commanded by an apostle speaking on behalf of God. That's where Titus' authority and that's where elders' authorities come from. Paul is not, that's why that word apostle is there. It's an emphasis as to where the authority comes for Titus to teach. And that's where Titus has the authority not to let false teachers or even his own insecurities keep him from fulfilling his important calling to preach and to teach God's truth. And that's why Paul wants Titus to speak authoritatively to the people of God, to tell them essentially that grace reigns in righteousness and that believers can experience true Christian liberty only in God's grace. You see, by God's grace, believers are freed from a life in bondage to sin and are freed to obey and to do good works for God. So to paraphrase what Paul is saying, Titus, I want you to teach people that if they really understand grace, they will be more zealous more committed, more faithful. They will be Bible-believing, Bible-obeying Christians. 
because God's grace trains us and teaches us to deny godliness and to live sensible and righteous and godly lives in this present evil age. You see, the remaining presence of sin in our lives means that we sometimes find it very difficult to receive the teachings of God's word. And this is why we need to prepare ourselves for the authoritative teaching and preaching of Scripture. By that I mean on a Sunday night or Sunday, on a Saturday night rather, or Sunday morning, you need to pray for the upcoming opportunity to hear God's word preached. You need to pray that your heart will be softened and humbled before God's word. You need to pray that the Lord would make your heart receptive to his message. And you need to pray that you will apply his words to daily living. We need to study the Bible so that we can recognize false teaching when we hear it. We need to pray really for that. When you understand what the Bible truly and actually says, you will be able to spot false teaching when you hear it. And we ignore or we reject the gospel of grace at our own peril. May God transform us by his salvation, bringing grace so that we live sensible, righteous, and godly lives in this fallen world. And may we seek to give him all the glory as we do so. When you look at your life, do you see the manifestation of God's grace in you, in the way you live, in the way you think, in the way you speak, if not, it may be because you're not saved. And if that's the case, run to the cross. Jesus is the Lamb of God, and by his sacrifice at Calvary, he took away the sin of the world. And so God does save people like you and me. His grace is wide and free. So come to Jesus. And let's pray that God will be gracious to us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word tonight. Grant that we pursue holiness, relying on your grace so that our lives might adorn the gospel of grace and that we may glorify you with our lives. We ask for your blessing upon our church, that we be witnesses for you in our town. May we be your committed disciples who are committed to your work of making more disciples. But before we talk about making disciples of others, may we be sure that we ourselves are indeed disciples of Jesus and that there is indeed evidence in our life that shows that we unmistakably are disciples of Jesus. Help us by your grace to live our lives for your glory. For all in our church, give us the boldness to stand for you in a world that denies you as the way and only way of salvation. 
May we continue to live in gratitude for what you have done for us. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.